Lecture 3, Missiology. Hello, this is Dr. David J. Singleton with Part 3 of 6, A109-B112, Missiology. Remember that part of the Holy Spirit's responsibility is to empower the sower and send them forth to a set place and receptive people that souls may be saved and a new church birth. I'd like you to list two reasons why many have failed in church planting. Additionally, why did members visit from church to church? What is a good substitute for getting among the people? List two immediate objectives every church planter should have. Now, since church planting responds to Jesus' great commission, as found in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, what important questions should we ask? Contained in this lecture is information from your required reading that you must obtain and communicate. Some of what you will gain through this course is more applicable to church planting on foreign soil in their urban, suburban, or rural communities. And some information is more applicable for the urban, suburban, and rural communities of America. Please listen and follow along closely to grasp and communicate the information requested. Now please take note. The work of planting a church is not for the faint at heart. No, if you are going to be one of the precious people that God will use to pioneer work for His glory, a New Testament church, if you will, you must have some thick skin. You must be resilient. You must be able to bounce back when it seems life has knocked you down, when it seems you face more disappointments than you ever anticipated in this endeavor. This work is not for the faint at heart. That being said, I want to put forth to you a question now. The question is, do we need another church in the United States of America? The question is, do we need another church in America? My response to you is, you are the judge. Now the answer you must give. Will it be yes or no? And I'll ask you to just take a brief moment to pause and ponder the question in your own mind. I suggest that you read along further before attempting to give a final answer to this most timely and relevant question. Some might quickly come up with an answer that they may need to change as they increase in knowledge about the state of the church in the United States of America. Let's garner some noteworthy information about America and the church in it from some of the research that has been done. According to Dave Olson, who is considered a church growth expert and has done some of the most extensive research in the country on the Christian church and churches in America and 
as uh, and certain things about America, he states that he has studied over 200,000 churches in the United States over the past 30 plus years. In 1990, 52 million people professed to be Christians. From 1990 to 2006, the population of the U.S. has increased by 52 million people. And the number of people that professed to be Christians in 2006 was 52 million. This says that out of 52 million and over 16 years in time, the number of Christians did not increase in any way by proportion to the country's increased population. In fact, it has dis, uh, uh, decreased substantially by proportion. Do we need another church in America? It is for you to answer this question. I simply offer this information so as to help you make an informed decision and conclude with a correct answer. His findings further submit that 49 out of the 50 states in the United States have a declining Christian population. The only state that has seen an increase is Hawaii. Consider this, that in America, 3,700 churches close their doors every year to no longer exist. Do we need another church in America? Well, according to Wynne Arndt, a researcher on church growth, he states that 80 to 85 percent of the churches in America are on a down side of the growth cycle. Further, he writes that many churches were established after World War II, and out of the 350,000 churches in America, four out of five of them have either plateaued or are declining. Since 1960, mainline churches such as Methodist, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, Episcopalian, and other kindred denominations have lost members steadily for many years now. Even the Lutheran Church and the Southern Baptists have seen a decline in churches and church attendance since 1998. The only few churches that reported some growth between 1995 and 2000 were some mega churches and the Assembly of God churches reported at least a 10% gain in regularly attending adults. Carl Dudley and David Rosen, in, comp in comprehensive surveys on American faith communities, submit that most congregations predate World War II, that is, 1939 to 1945. Lyle Shaler observes that 66 to 75 percent of all congregations founded before 1960 are either on a plateau in size or shrinking in number. Observe this additional information as you endeavor to correctly answer the question, do we need another church in the United States of America? 
It is said that 50% of the churches in the U.S. have 100 to 300 members attending regularly. There are some churches that have many more members and are growing as well as some that have fewer members that are growing as well. However, the 50% of churches from 100 to 300 has not grown. If this half of the Christian church in the U.S. are not growing and only some of those much larger or smaller are growing, do we need another church in the United States of America? Aubrey Malfer state that many churches that are 40 years old or older have a declining membership. The Barna Group reported that since 1991 to 2009, the number of unchurched adults have nearly doubled from 39 million to 72 million, a 92% increase. Findings suggest that 71% of the 240 million in the U.S. population is unchurched, meaning only 29% are churched. That means there's a lot of room for growth of the Christian church in America. Let's note some increases in our nation. Liquor stores in the United States have increased. There is an increase in pharmaceutical drug sales and pharmaceutical drug use in the United States. Car sales has increased steadily in the United States since 1960. Food consumption has increased in the United States. There are more movie theaters open today than 10 years ago. The Mormons have also almost tripled in membership from 1965 to 2002. Islam has become one of the fastest growing religious groups in America. Buddhist and Hindu faiths have also experienced significant growth in the past decade. I have at least one more tidbit of information for you to consider at this time. Did you know that one of Rochester, New York's local news channel, Wham! 13 News, reported on Resurrection Sunday, or on Easter Day, if you will, March 31st, 2013, that Rochester, New York, was one of the least religious cities in the nation. Do you believe the church is as strong as it could be? Do you believe we're doing all that we should be doing? I wonder if many do not think of planning a church because it is much more comfortable and easy to just ride in the car rather than to drive the car. This is the time to answer the question, do we need another church in America? Now that you've made your decision based on information you've gained and on personal conviction, let's move on. Some reasons for planting New Testament churches. First, it helps us to consider what the scriptures have said. According to Matthew 16, 18, 
And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here, the Lord Jesus speaks, and he says, upon this rock. What rock, one might ask, is it he is talking about? Well, I submit he is talking about the rock of Revelation. There's nothing like knowing what you know that you know you know. And if you know that God has ordained you or you are, you have a, a strong conviction that God is leading you to pioneer work, I'll tell you right now, it's kind of hard to even think of that if God doesn't give it to you. But if he has given you that, he declares he will build the church. In fact, it is so noteworthy that God promises he will do the building. You see, he will cause the church to come together. He just needs a conduit to work through. He needs a man or a woman or men and women to work together that he might build his church. Further, he goes on and declares that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Or, if I were to reword that a little bit, I might say all the forces of hell shall not subdue or have dominion over his church. In other words, God promised you victory. God promises that the church is going to be sustained whatever the ebb and flow is in the nation or different decades or different centuries. God declares that the gates of hell will not prevail. It will not be able to shut the doors of the church. Now, the doors of a local assembly may close, but the local assembly, the building, is not the church. The church is made up of blood-washed believers in Christ Jesus, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the believers who will walk by faith according to the counsel of God's word. Additionally, we have what is commonly referred to as the Great Commission there in Matthew 28. And I'll read 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you alway, even until the end of the world. Amen. So Jesus speaking says, I'm the one who has the power. I have, I have the power from heaven and I have the power from earth. I have the power over all. And I'm the one who is commissioning you to go. Now, this may not seem like much, but I submit this is much more than we can consider. Here is the God of eternity declaring, I'm sending you. I'm the top notch. I'm the one who holds eternity in my hand. I am the sovereign of the ages. I am the first and the last, the great I am, the alpha, the omega. I am all. And I'm the one that's empowering you. I'm the one who is commissioning you. I'm the one who's ordaining you. And I'm the one who is commanding you to go and teach the nations, baptizing them, if you will, in my name. 
teaching them to observe whatever I've commanded you, teaching them to observe my word. And then he promises, I'll be with you even until the end of the world. Here the Lord Jesus declares and commissions us with an assignment which includes going to all the nations, and I believe that is even our own nation, not just going to distant nations, but right in America, we have an assignment to share Christ with others, to teach and to baptize and uh, uh, help people to know, understand, and trust that by the aid of the Holy Spirit, they will obey the word of the Lord, and he promises to be with us right until the very end. Now, this gives much cause for hope to me, and I trust that it builds your faith and cause a rejoicing in your heart as well. You see, it means that as we obey God, we are walking in the A part of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. There in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, the A part of the verse says, We then, as workers together with Him, or workers together with God, in fact, planning a church, has to be a work that is a uh, uh, compilation, if you will, or is a uh, joint effort between us and the God who made us. Yes, the work we are called to do is a work we cannot do alone. No, this is a work that can only be accomplished through the guidance, strength, and help of the Lord. Who are you called to? Do you know? Did you know that men make up less than half of the U.S. population, but 55% of the unchurched? Meaning, there's a lot of room and good pickings among that group. Between New York and California, almost 25% of the unchurched population of the country live in these two states. It seems to me that according to John 4, 35, as the scripture says, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. He says, Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white and ready to harvest. In fact, I submit today, they are waiting on you. A, a New York State and California, I'm submitting, are right places to see a move of God unlike we have seen in recent times. If 25% of the unchurched population in America resides in these two states, then, as this scripture says, the fields are white and they are ready to harvest. And if you're in New York State or you're in California, I'm telling you, your pickings are probably the best of any place in the country. Now, every place is a good place. Some places just has a, a greater likelihood of greater success, although sometimes the way we see it, it looks like we're not perhaps having the level of success we desire. And so I would today that you would be encouraged. I submit we have more opportunity than perhaps we have ever imagined. I say to those of you who are led to plant a New Testament church, do so as the Lord leads and expect 
great, good, and lasting fruit. This is included in this lecture, although I believe it is a word from the Lord. Now, I know God is sending an end-time harvest of global proportion. Therefore, we need to make ready to get the harvest in. Hallelujah to the King of Kings and those that are conduits of His being used of Him to get this last day harvest in. I believe we have a bright future as the body of Christ for this great harvest. Not every church or everyone called to plant a church. Those who sense a prompting, leading, or conviction to start a church, then you are advantaged if you obey the leading of the Holy Spirit. He knows where he has called you and all that God has purposed for your life. For those who are not called or empowered to start a church, please remember, you are called and empowered to be a witness of the reality, power, and presence of the Lord and the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The scriptures declare in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And so to those of you, you say, well, I, you know, Bishop, Doctor, I, uh, Brother, I'm not uh, one of those folk that will be starting up any church, not now or ever. I already know God didn't call me to that. Well, you know, I'm not debating the matter. I believe everybody must be persuaded in their own heart of whatever it is that God will have them to do. One of the things I do resolve, and I trust that you'll embrace, is that God has given you a word and a ministry of reconciliation to help others come to know him or to bring them in harmony to him again. And that's to every believer, church planter or not. That is our assignment according to the counsel of the word. Now, we demonstrate a great part of the Father's heart when we have a burden for what I call pre-Christians. It is when we have an ongoing and undeniable desire to see those that have not yet surrendered to Christ come to know him in a very personal way. Through the witness that you give, some will come to know Jesus. God shows us his will for all that do not know him in 2 Peter 3 and 9. The scriptures declare, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should be lost, but that all should repent. In other words, God wants every man to be saved. So your co-workers, 
your family members, your neighbors, and your friends, as well as persons who are totally total strangers to you or may seemingly be an enemy to you, the Bible says God wants that all would come to repentance, meaning he cares about those souls. And many times we can allow God to use us as a conduit to bring these souls into the kingdom because your mission field may not be on a distant shore. Your mission field may be to specific to a specific person here and a specific person there. And I, I just want to remind you today, uh, some of you are fathers and, and mothers and grandparents and, and, and friends and aunties and uncles and all such. And you have nieces, nephews, children, cousins, grands, and so forth, in-laws, that God wants to use you as a conduit, use you as his representative to those persons that some might know him. And so I just appeal to you today to allow God to work through you. And, and I speak to you today, I trust that you will have boldness and courage like never before, that you will be unashamedly and unapologetically Christian. Now, I don't believe we have to be mean-spirited with it. I do believe, however, we need to stand up and be counted, for the Scriptures declare that the righteous are bold as a lion. Now, since God wants them to come to him, and when you want them to come to him as well, then the odds are great that you get used to help them know him, know Jesus Christ. In fact, I have a saying. The saying is, whenever we want what God wants, our chances of getting it goes off the chart. Somebody ought to say amen. Some advantages. Let's talk about some advantages of new churches. New churches commonly have certain advantages over established churches. First, new churches grow faster. Additionally, new churches evangelize better than older established churches. In new churches, planters gain credibility faster than new pastors in established churches. And then, number four, those involved in church planning are more open and receptive to change than those of established churches. Now, let's just talk about these things just a little bit. Number one, uh, new churches grow faster it's because many times in a new church, there is an excitement. There is an anticipation, an expectation. There's a vision that's been cast. And because the vision has been cast and the vision many times have been written down, then the people who read it, they run according to Habakkuk 2.2. And so there's this, this uh, joy, if you will, in the work, this excitement in the work. And because they are excited, they help get others excited. You see, it's something that's on fire that can cause something else to get on fire. If you do not have fire yourself, it's hard for you to light a fire if you don't have fire. And so new churches grow faster. Additionally, new churches evangelize better than older churches. Why? Because many times new churches is, again, this fire that's on the inside of them, it puts, as it were, a running in their feet. It puts a song in their hearts. It puts a clapping in their hands. It puts a desire. They envision their church 
growing, if you will. Many times the older, more established church has come to this place where they are exactly that, established. They have come to this place where uh, many of the needs are met. They have touched many lives over time, and it's easy for many of them to sit back and kind of maybe fall into a pattern that doesn't really go after the pre-Christians as well and as strong as it used to. Therefore, they don't evangelize as well. You see, in a new church, most everybody's getting involved. If they're not able to just get out there and walk and talk, they're at least there in prayer. But in established churches, you may have a group that will go out and a group that will pray, but there's this other portion of that church which seems so unconcerned, so indifferent about reaching these pre-Christians for Christ. Let me skip uh, this, this next one about the credibility and go to the fourth advantage, which involves change. Whenever um, uh, one is in a new church, the ability to change is commonly easier because they're just open at that time. It's like, Lord, whatever you say, amen, we know we hadn't been down this road before. Whatever you say, we're willing to go. In established churches, many times they have included so many uh, channels you have to go through. you got to talk to this one and that one and this board and that committee. And if, if this one signs off on it and that one doesn't, it kind of holds up the process. And many pastors have gotten locked into a dynamic where they couldn't even be the pastor. There's boards that run the church now. I believe and declare the order of God is that God calls a committed person. He doesn't call committees. He doesn't call boards. He calls a committed person, and he gives that committed person a vision. And bless God, there are people, when they hear the vision, they sign on to the vision. And in order to accomplish various tasks, they get into smaller groups so they can do it in the sense of committees and or in the sense of boards. Many times these persons are voted on, elected, if you will, or some are appointed. But they're, they're teams that's put together for a specific purpose. But the call of God is to a committed person, male or female. Amen. Now let's go back to number three and talk about uh, this commit uh, uh, credibility piece. Let me take a moment to share concerning credibility as a new pastor to an established church. Now some of you listening to this lecture may be asked to take on a senior pastoral position at an established church. Understanding a few key things can help you immensely. As an incoming pastor of an established church, there is an old saying among men that say, what you don't know won't hurt you. And I guess that is so in its place. However, on the other hand, what you don't know can not only hurt you, but it can also kill you. I believe that you want to do all that God has for you to do, and this is great. I also know. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because Thou hast rejected knowledge in the part A of that verse. 
In other words, I believe that God says, my people are destroyed because of what they don't know. And many don't know because they haven't tried to know, because they close their ears to knowing, or they refuse to read it or to listen to the lecture. But thank God that you are not such a person. You are one who wants to be in the know. You're mindful of the scripture where God speaks and says, I will not have you ignorant, brethren, through the Apostle Paul. You see, it is imperative that you know and understand the process. That just because they voted for you, elected you, and appointed you as the official pastor, it does not mean that you are the leader in reality. You see, the chauffeur may be behind the steering wheel. He gets to turn the key, press the accelerator, and even the brake. But it's really someone else that's running things. That's kind of how it is when you come into an established church. As this new pastor, you aren't running things. You are just doing what you are told. If you are invited to be the pastor and offered an established church, the first thing to do is to pray and seek God's wisdom on whether it is his will for you to accept the position. If you resolve it is the will of God for you to take on this pastoral assignment, then wisdom says, recognize that you will be a figurehead in the beginning. They may call you pastor, put your name on the marquee outside, and even write your name on the church bus. But be assured, you are not really the leader. The process is that you are first the chaplain at an established church. Then you are the pastor at the established church. Last, you become the leader of the established church. Now, perhaps you notice that the first two stages are you are simply at. You're at the church as a chaplain and you're at the church as a pastor. But it's not until later that you become the, the leader of the church and not simply at the church. Now, on many occasions, whenever a person takes on an established church, as their uh, pastor, you will find that different people will want to get next to you for different reasons. You must prayerfully stay before God for him to help you discern his will. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Additionally, it is important to stay in the word, for the psalmist declares, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, Psalms 119.105. You see, you and I are instructed, God gives us instructions, he says, for us to pray to him, us to call on him. He says if we'll do that, he will answer us, and then he'll give us revelation. He'll show us things. He will uh, uh, reveal things to us that we otherwise would not know. 
He will show us how to navigate the course, as it were. The psalmist declares that the word of God will be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, so as to say, without the word of God, we walk in a darkness. We walk in a path that we cannot identify. But when the good seed and the great light of the word of God is upon our feet, we can see better where the pitfalls are. We can see better where the mines are in the field. And we can avoid those things that would otherwise trip us up, cause us and others harm, or perhaps even death. And then he declares, your word will be a light unto my path, or it is a light unto my path. Meaning, not only will I see how to take the step that I have to take next, but I can also see where I'm going because your word is a light unto my entire path. It is imperative that you endeavor to observe and learn who are the real decision makers at this established church. One of the ways to identify the more uh, influential voices in the church is to be keenly aware of who does everyone look at when there's a matter to be decided. With all the talking that goes on around the table and all the opinions that are shared, when it gets to the end, when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, when it gets down to the last word, whose word carries the most weight? Now you, as this incoming pastor, you, you will have to be able to restrain yourself because sometimes there's a tendency to want to jump in and to say something. But sometimes it's much better to listen and learn. You see, once you learn who they are, you may want to know what does their heart beat for. Now most incoming pastors have a vision of what they want to see. Sometimes... That they believe God has planted in their heart. This is great. It is just crucial for you to know and understand that it will take time if this thing is to be. And you are not, uh, or, or, and you have got to be willing to allow God to do what he alone can do. Now I know you may have some ideas on how things should be run. As you observe some of the things that may be out of order, you may be exactly right in your assessment. However, according to Ecclesiastes 3.1, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. This tells us that there is a season or a window of time to make some changes. You want to make sure you are in the right season for endeavoring to implement change. Now, please catch this. If you want to implement God-honoring change, and if you want to be able to stay at this established church, the first thing you need to do is know that God has called you there. You must understand that even though you are in the will of God, it doesn't mean everything is just going to be flowing like peaches and cream. No, 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 no. Let us not be deceived. Let us not think 
that just because we have prayed, we have fasted, we have sought God, we have cried, He has spoken to us, we have heard, and we have moved to obey, that everything is going to be easy. Not so. I submit to you, the Lord Jesus was forever in the center of the Father's will, notwithstanding, still He had many challenges on this side of heaven. And if it happened with Him, no surprise if it happened with you and I. But you need to know, as the Lord Jesus declared, I've been sent. In other words, this is my assignment. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Come hell or high water, I'm going to do it. And you've got to have such a resolve that you know that you know that you know you know God has spoken to your heart. God has commissioned you as best you're able to assess the leading of the Holy Spirit and the counsel of God to you for your life and for the purpose for which he has ordained you, you have to go in that. Number two, you must know that God has given you grace for the assignment. So it doesn't matter that it seems sometimes so daunting and it seems so overwhelming or so taxing or whatever terms and phrases we will use to be descriptive of this dynamic. You must know God has given you the grace for this because he knew about this before you got here and he never would have given you the assignment if he didn't give you what you need to complete the assignment in a most God-honoring way. Number three. You must know that you must seek him to get wisdom for the course. So even though this is your assignment, you know God has called you there. You know he's given you the grace for it. The answer for us is in us, but it's hidden from us, and God alone is the one to reveal it to us. So we must come to him. The Bible says, if any man like wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. So you and I must ask God for the wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding, and the wherewithal to walk this thing out in a way that he will be glorified. Number four, you must know that all wineskins have trouble with new wine. If you go forth to make any kind of implementation, the folk who are there first are, are the ones who will give you the biggest kick. In business, they know that all hire will be the biggest trouble whenever they want to implement something new. And so many times they will do uh, incentives to get old wineskins out because they know they'll have trouble with old wineskins. And sometimes old wineskins can kind of poison the minds of new wineskins. So many times they'll try to usher some of them out as they endeavor to bring about change because you need some folk coming in with the change that can embrace it even though you have some who will kick against it. Number five, know that new wineskins do much better and fulfill purpose with new wines. In fact, or new wine. New wine skins, they need new wine. That's the only thing that's going to stretch them. Old wine won't stretch them. It's already fermented. In fact, the old wine skins can't take the new wine because the new wine will cause a bursting, if you will, because it will stretch it, as it were. And so it's important for you to, to understand that there are some people who will not be able to get with your vision. They'll not be able to embrace what or embrace what God has said to you. But you've got to know what you know that you know you know. Let me see if I can touch on one more before we conclude and we'll have to carry over to the next lecture. You must know that uh, uh, or know that you must help that church family to put a premium on the value of the word of God. In other words, that God's word will be the final authority on every matter. As you come into a church 
understanding that you are first the chaplain, then you are the pastor, before you are actually the leader. So you don't really change so much until you become the leader. When you are the leader, it is when you have relational capital. It is when people have a confidence that you love God and you love them. When people have a confidence that you're endeavoring to follow God, it's the time when they're willing to follow you. You see, because in many established churches, whether you were there or not, they were going to show up at church. They're coming to see who's the next preacher that's going to come through the door and preach or which one of them are going to preach. They, they really will function without you. And so we must understand that we are not so critical to the process unless we're willing to follow the counsel of God. Mm, yes, yes, yes. And so when it comes to implementing change, it is important that you help the congregation to put a premium value on the word of God. Help them to see that God knows best, that God loves them, that God has been there for them all of their lives, that what God says is so. And it's not debatable by me, by you or anybody else. And you've got to just help raise the value of that word before you try to implement any sort of change except change on how they value, how they see, and how they embrace the word. That is your key assignment once you have identified some of these uh, prerequisite things. You need to know who the key players are at that church. Amen. You need to know what their heart beats for. You see, somebody's heart may beat for the nursery ministry while somebody else's heart may beat for missions and someone else's heart might beat for their uh, neighborhood and, and community ministry and all of that while somebody else just want to be known and, and all that stuff. But God can help you to navigate the course. And so, again, number one, you got to know that God has called you there. Number two. That God has given you the grace for the assignment. Number three, that you must seek him to get wisdom for the course. Number four, that the old wineskins have trouble with new wine. Number five, that the wineskins, that new wineskins do much better and fulfill purpose with new wine. And number six, know that you must help that church family to put a premium on the value of the word of God. In other words... That God's word will be the final authority in every matter. Now this concludes uh, part three of this six-part lecture in missiology. In part four, we will revisit one through six and continue seven through ten and further. God bless you.